Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Hey, Prodigal, thanks for joining us online today. And we have a special announcement. For those who are watching online, we want to let you know you're going to be the first to actually know this, okay? Because our live service is going to happen after this, but you're the first to know that on Sunday, June 13th, Prodigal Church will be meeting indoors at Bullard High School in the Bullard High School Theater. Uh, this is exciting. It's something we've been working towards for a long time, and we couldn't be more excited to be back, kind of where our church began. Um, and get another sense of normalcy as the light continues to get brighter. And so uh, we can't wait. It's going to be on Sunday, June 13th. Our service will be at 10 a.m. and we'll have kids ministry available as well. And you're going to hear more about that over the next three weeks. But we want to give you the heads up. Mark your calendars. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Do you remember where we left off last week, right? The Israelites cross over on dry ground, and then within three months, they grumble and complain against God and Moses three different times. Yet God supernaturally intervenes at every turn. And today, we're going to cover chapters 17 through 19, but we're going to Tarantino this, okay? We're going to start from the end and then go back to the beginning. Uh, and I'm going to give you the ending first, and then we'll kind of go back towards um, chapter 17. And so it's going to be 19 to 17 rather than 17 to 19. Are you with me? Get your Bibles ready. Let's start in chapter 19. Verse 2, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. The people of God now find themselves at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. It is here that they will remain for almost a year, a scene that will take the writer 59 chapters to describe. Uh, the Israelites finally leave in Numbers chapter 10. And it is also here where God fulfills the prophecy that he gave to Moses in chapter 3. God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses' journey comes full circle. He met God on Mount Horeb in chapter 3, and now he returns with the Israelites free back in Exodus chapter 19. He's back where he began. And Paul writes in the New Testament, in a letter to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will surely carry it to completion. Moses experiences this truth. And so do we. The God who began a good work in you, he's not done with you yet. He will certainly carry it to completion. God began something new in him with this burning bush and this mountain in the Midian desert. And God said, I will bring your people back here to worship. And they do against all the odds against them. Everybody put money on Egypt. Uh, Israel wasn't even an underdog against Egypt. They were a dead dog against Egypt. This is not like a, a college football team against a pro football team. This is like an elementary school peewee football team against an NFL team. The odds were completely stacked against them. There's no way they were going to be able to get victory over the Egyptians and worship back. But through God, it happened. It was so. God's promise became true. And here at the end, God brings Moses back to the beginning. And we're doing the same. So what happens next? I mean, what happens before? Let's go to chapter 18. 
Here, we again meet a character um, that is being revisited. His name is Jethro, and he's the father-in-law of Moses. Uh, he is also a priest in Midian. We meet him many years ago after Moses is exiled out of Egypt. Uh, and Jethro comes back uh, to meet Moses, and he brings with him his children, uh, Gershom and Eleazar, and then also his wife, Zipporah. It's a family reunion. And so Moses sees Jethro and they're like, wow, it's been so long. Your beard looks so good. Thanks, man. Let's chat. And uh, they catch up on all that has happened over these last um, years. And so look at verse nine. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Moses' father-in-law was a priest of Midian. He, he wasn't a follower of the, the God of Israel. He was a member of a different religion. Yet here, he praises God, declares his greatness over all other gods, and he offers sacrifices. So is he a convert? Did he become a, a convert already? Or is this his conversion experience? Or is Yahweh simply just the greatest God among all the other gods, including the gods of Midian? We don't know. But us not knowing doesn't disqualify us from receiving the advice that Jethro gives to Moses. Now, I'm gonna summarize what happens next. The very next day, Moses takes Jethro with him to work, okay? Moses is leading the people of God, and it's take your father-in-law to work day. And so Moses takes Jethro with him. And this is a unique thing. My father-in-law is is probably watching this right now, but I don't take him to work with me um, to, for him to critique and see what I do or may not do. Um, but Jethro watches Moses and Jethro sees some of the actions of Moses as not being smart. So he's going to offer his advice. Put yourself in this situation. Things could get awkward, right? What does Jethro know? He's not leading the people of God. Uh, I am. I've done a pretty good job myself, don't you think? Why should I listen to him? He's been in Midian, safe and sound. Uh, how would you respond? How do you respond when people give you advice? I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't handle it very well. Sometimes when Sarah gives me advice about a certain situation, I react in a very immature way. Like, like I take her advice as an insult to me. Like, like, you don't think I'm good at my job? You don't think I can handle this by myself? And I take it as an insult. I'm good at my job. I can handle this situation. How many of you are like me, okay? Do you know how destructive that thinking is? Do you know how this messes us up? When we close off the advice of others, or when we are unable to listen and discern the advice of others, we are most often missing out on God's guidance to us. We're missing out on God's megaphone to us. Because don't tell my wife, but she's most often right. So what's Jethro's issue with Moses? And how does Moses respond? Look at verse 13. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. 
When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Some of you need to hear that today. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle this alone. So what does Jethro tell Moses to do about it? Look at verse 19. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. What great advice. Moses, you're killing yourself hearing all these cases from morning to sunset every single day. You've got to delegate. Three bad results flowed from Moses' bad style of leadership here. Number one, he was overworked and he simply couldn't cope with all he had to do. Number two, the people were deprived of immediate attention and swift justice that they actually needed in those situations. And then three, the elders and other competent individuals were not given their ability or opportunity to use their talents, their giftings. And Moses himself couldn't see it. So what was Moses' response to his father-in-law's advice on take your father-in-law to work day? Is it zip it, father-in-law? Okay, you've been in Midian, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what I'm doing. Now look at verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. God uses this Midianite priest to help Moses be a better leader. But the question remains, why does Moses need Jethro to tell him this? Because up to this point, Moses seems to have this really great supernatural connection with God where God speaks to him and tells him things to do. And Moses does it. Why isn't God just able to say, hey, Moses, start delegating? And Moses is like, yep. Why does he need someone else? Why does he need another voice to say, no, you're doing this wrong. You're missing something here. To be honest, I don't know. But it seems as though God is wanting to teach something more than just delegation to Moses. He's teaching Moses about receiving wise counsel from others, not only those within leadership, but those outside of leadership and those outside of Israel. Every good leader knows this. We need to be able to hear critique from others, not just within our circle, but outside of our circle. Those that are a part of Israel, those that are outside of Israel. Good advice is good advice whether it comes from a Christian or not. And what Jethro offers to Moses is very good advice. If you're doing the job of two people, then there is someone who isn't doing their job. So you're not only wearing yourself out, but you're cheating another person of growing in their giftedness, their abilities, their talents, their ministries. Statistics show that the average church, let's bring this home, uh, that... 10% of the people 
do about 90% of the work. I would love to tell you that Prodigal Church is different, that, that those numbers, those percentages, those are for the other churches, they're not for Prodigal Church. But if I'm honest, I think that there's a lot of truth in that statement, that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. A church once put this on the back of their bulletin. Church mourns death of prominent member. The church was sad in this past week to learn of the death of one of its most prominent members, someone else. Someone's passing creates a vacancy that will be difficult to fill. Else has been with us for so many years. Someone did far more than a normal person's share of the work. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, or a meeting to attend, one name was on everyone's list. Let someone else do it. It was common knowledge that someone else was among the most generous givers in the church. Whenever there was a financial need, everyone just assumed that someone else would make up the difference. Someone else was a wonderful person, sometimes appearing to be superhuman, but a person can only do so much. Were the truth known, everyone expected too much out of someone else. Now someone else is gone. We wonder what are we going to do. Someone else left a wonderful example to follow, but who is going to do the things that someone else did? As we move back to Bullard High School, our needs as a church grow exponentially. And our vision is big here at Prodigal. And for us to continue to be the kind of community God has called us to be, for, uh, not just here in our city, but also in our world, uh, we need you. Would you consider volunteering once a month. Maybe it's in setup or teardown. Maybe it's in PC kids ministry. Maybe it's in worship ministry or tech ministry. But here at Prodigal, we want to take the advice of Moses' and father-in-law, Jethro, the priest in Midian, by doing more together, by delegating, by changing the numbers of the 10% and the 90%. And we, we've made it really easy for you. Uh, just click the volunteer tab on the app or uh, on our website. Uh, and you can volunteer in all these things. Someone will reach out to you, get you plugged in. Um, and uh, it's way more fun than it sounds, <laughs> especially kids ministry. It's an absolute blast. Uh, there's so much joy and fun and laughter. And so we want to ask our core people to volunteer once a month um, as you feel led. And so uh, if you're watching this online right now, Feel free to check it, off, check it up on the app or on our website, um, and we would love to hear from you as we continue to grow towards being the kind of community God has called us to be here in our city. So what happens last in our story? Or as we put it today, what happens first? Chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now the book of Deuteronomy gives us a little bit more information about how this attack came about. Look at Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Malachites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Amalek attacked those who, were left, who lagged behind. Okay, They attacked the stragglers, the most vulnerable, the sick, the weak, the old, the young. Moses hears about it, and so he says to Joshua, choose some men and go fight. Now, who's going to fight? How are they going to fight? 
They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It wasn't because of their uprising that they were able to free themselves. They fought their way out of Egypt. No, God fought for them. Israel didn't have an army. They didn't have any weapons. Or did they? The, the great Jewish historian Josephus points out that the Hebrews got weapons from the Egyptians who drowned in the Red Sea. According to Jewish tradition, God did a second miracle after they crossed on dry ground. He made all of the Egyptians metal swords, metal spears, and armor float to the top, so all to the banks of Israel to grab and take with them into the desert as they needed. And they did need them. They needed them to fight off the Amalekites here. So God provided armor and weapons for them, and God calls you to battle. He always provides you what you need. So Moses says to Joshua, you get the men to fight, and I'll go up on that hill over there with the staff of God. That's the plan. That's the military strategy. There is no militaristic training in Israel. When you look at Israel, in terms of warfare, they never retain a standing army. Their recruitment policies sound ridiculous. Okay? Here's some of the things that go on the who doesn't have to fight for Israel list. Okay? Did you get married recently? Okay? Stay home. Did you buy a vineyard? Stay home. Are you afraid to fight? Stay home. Okay? There's no military draft in Israel. The emphasis over and over again, and we will see this play out through the history of Israel, is that God is going to fight for Israel. The armies are only a piece of that puzzle, and they're not even the major piece of the puzzle. So joining the army of Israel was actually much more an act of faith than it was of patriotism or valor. So Moses and Joshua gather the willing. They don't make people do this. They've got to trust that they can trust God in this. But part of that means that they have to learn that they cannot trust themselves. Okay, did you catch that? For the people of God to learn that they, they can rely on God with something, part of that means that they can't they must learn that they cannot rely on themselves, okay? One more time for the back row. For you to learn that you can trust God with something, a necessity of that is the hard lesson that you cannot trust yourself. You cannot trust in your own power, your own ability, your own giftedness. Either give it to God or don't, but don't straddle the fence. Don't offer it to God and then never let it out of your hands. Israel's learning. They need to trust God in this. He's trustworthy. Okay, back to the battle, verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Okay, Hur is a him, okay? Uh, and they're supporting Moses here. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. They go up on a hill, away from the battle. As long as Moses' hands were raised, Israel was winning. But when he lowered them, the Amalekites were winning. And so Aaron and her get a stone so that Moses can sit down. And then Aaron and her hold his arms up so that they remain raised. Now, the reason for Moses' gesture is 
has been puzzling to scholars for thousands of years. It could be a smiting or like a cursing or like a warlike gesture. It could also be a posture of prayer representing that they're depending on God for victory. We're not told, but it seems like there is some kind of connection happening here between Moses' action on top of the hill with the staff of God and what was happening in the valley as Joshua fought the Amalekites. Now, many Christians will take this as an encouragement towards intercessory prayer, that how, how we pray affects the battle here on earth. And I do believe that that is a biblical principle found throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. But I'm not convinced, we're not told that that is exactly what's going on here. Verse 13, I love this. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So wait, was it Joshua and the army that gained victory or was it Moses, Aaron, and Hur? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because all the focus of this chapter is on Moses, Aaron, and her, yet when it comes to giving credit for victory in the battle, the credit goes to Joshua. Many years ago, Bishop McConnell told a story of something that happened off a little fishing village on the New England coast. On one winter's day, a storm came up suddenly as the boats were out to sea, and the men rowed desperately to reach safety. Everybody made it except for one old man named John. He had almost reached the mouth of the harbor when a great wave came and knocked him off, broke his tiny boat. He managed to pull himself up on this ledge of this rock and hang on for dear life. His friends saw what happened, but there wasn't anything they could do about it. Uh, it, was, it was already growing dark. The seas were high. The waves were restless. All they could do was wait. So they built a fire on the shore. They kept it burning all night long in the midst of the rain. Every once in a while, someone would, would throw their, their cap in the air and fling it around like this, hoping that John could see. At last, dawn began to break and the winds died down. And they put to their boats and they were able to find John, put him onto the boat and put him on dry ground. And as he warmed himself by the fire and with a warm meal, he said what it was like out there. He said, well, it was the longest night of my life. I made out pretty well at first, but then a big wave came along and flattened me out, and I felt myself slipping. I was worn out. I was ready to give up. My old father went down at sea, and I had decided my time had come. But just as I was ready to let go, I looked through the darkness and saw somebody's cap going up in the air. I said to myself, if there's somebody who cares enough about old John to stay out on a night like this, I guess I'm not going to quit just yet. Just then the winds seemed to ease up. I got a fresh hold and well, here I am. That's the picture in Exodus 17. Aaron and her are holding up the hands of Moses and that's the picture of the interconnectedness that we have with God's people. There is a connectedness that we have where our actions, our prayers, our integrity have real concrete effects on our community and on our world. Again, I'm not convinced that this is the only lesson um, in this passage, that it's, not, that it's only about prayer, but many scholars see it this way. And after studying this this week and focusing in on all these chapters, I came across a quote by Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian watchmaker during World War II, and she hid Jewish people from the Nazis uh, in her own home under floorboards, under faux walls. She and her family were eventually placed in the concentration camp 
at Ravensbrook, and she said this about prayer. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? What a convicting question. Is prayer, is God your steering wheel or is he your spare tire? That we only go to him when it feels like we really need him, when we've got a flat, when we're stuck on the side of the road? Or do we let him take the wheel and he takes us where he wants us to go? I don't know where God wants you to go. Perhaps it's serving. God has a way of bringing you back to where you started, reminding you of what it's all about. What started in you, God will bring to completion. Is God your steering wheel or your spare tire? And throughout Israel's history, as we shall see in the wilderness wanderings here in Exodus, oh so often, all too often, he's just that spare tire. May it not be so. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would move us to follow you on this journey through the wilderness. Move us to action. Move us to greater dependence. Move us to greater prayer. Move us to greater love. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we continue our Into the Wilderness series as they finally arrive at the mountain of God and we deal with the Ten Commandments. And so that's going to be an absolute blast. Circle next week. It's going to be great. Also next week, as we talk about the Ten Commandments, right afterwards, we have our PC Kids Fun Run where they're raising money for Live Again Fresno. It's going to be a blast. And our all-church picnic. We've got a taco truck coming, and we just want to buy some tacos for you and just hang out. We've got a lot of fun competitions and games um, for the whole family. So we hope to see you next week after church at our church picnic and PC Kids Fun Run. Have a great week. Peace and good luck.